Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to pick up. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, Context in Matthew chapter 1, 2, and 3, we've seen that Jesus comes from a kingly line. He comes from a virgin birth. He was a king born in Bethlehem. He was out of Egypt. He was known as a Nazarene or or a branch uh, that comes out of that area. Um, He is not yet a light unto the into Galilee, um, but we'll get there in this chapter. Chapter 3 shows John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit coming with God speaking um, as the beginning of something new, a new ministry of Jesus, a new covenant, a new message of what's going on. So as the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, chapter 4 is the very next event. The next event is his temptation in the wilderness. Um, And according to Luke 16, 16, The law and the prophets were up until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. Uh, This is the point where Luke says the era of the prophets ends, is when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. That's the transition into this new era of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Um, And in the next next two sentences of chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, we've got tons of first-use words that we need to cover. So... The first time they get used in the New Testament, some of them the first time they get used in the whole Bible. Um, So we're going to address spiritual warfare. Um, So really this picks up, I think, if you go back into chapter 3, we'll start at verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So <clears throat> that happens before Jesus is tempted. He becomes, <clears throat> uh, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and lights on him. God speaks. The Trinity comes together in this epic historic moment. If we're not children of God, the next chapter doesn't mean much to us. If we're not, we can't really fight sin or temptation if the Spirit of God isn't working in us. Uh, In fact, likely in the flesh, we'll do quite the opposite. We'll embrace sin and let that rule our lives. So this is just one of those kinds of things. God is going to make a kingdom that looks the opposite of what the world has put out. And the uh, the world's... Grant, can you move that for me? The um, uh, Satan, in, uh, in defiance of God, has created a world where everything goes opposite. The strong are in charge. The... um, the prideful are, are conquering. Um, and in this sense, we have a spirit that's going to actually go the opposite. And Satan's going to tempt based on those things. Because Jesus, as God, can do things the way God the Father is instructing him to do it, the plan that God's had all along, or he can do it the way the world would have him do it. And that's kind of the, temp- the temptations in a nutshell. Um, and it says Jesus was led by the spirit. We get the, the pneuma in the Greek. It's a breath of air. Uh, in this sense, it's more of a proper noun or the breath of God. 
um, is sending him in that way. Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't tempt him. God never tempts us. James uh, 1.13 uh, let no man say when he's tempted that I'm tempted for God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, evil, neither tempted by he any man the same way. So the Spirit leads him into the devil's temptation, but the Spirit itself doesn't tempt him at all. Um, in fact, the word tempt there has gotten a bad connotation, parazzo. It means to test or to challenge, um, to see whether something can be done or not. Um, we tend to think of temptation as as a temptation to sin or do evil um, but to be tested isn't sin itself it's to be tested and survive it is actually a strengthening process and it's better for us to go through trials and tests than it is to not go through those things the devil here another first use of the bible uh, is diabolos um, it means false accuser or literally the word means liar or slanderer um, a calumniator i love finding that word when I was looking this up. Um, but the devil is a liar. And so when we translate that into the English, uh, it would be a liar. Also note that this isn't a proper noun. It's the devil, the liar, but it's not the name of the devil in this sense. We'll get Satan's name later in the chapter. Um, and to go out into the wilderness uh, is going to be something that looks a little bit like uh, when God leads Israel out into the wilderness. There's this, this period that he's going to spend in this space that actually prepares him to do the work of God. Um, <clears throat> so the, we have the accuser, the slanderer, the liar um, that's going to lie to Jesus and see if Jesus bites on any of these things. I don't think that Jesus struggled with these things. So one of the things Jesus does is he lets himself get hungry. In, in verse 2, when he'd fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he's hungry. Uh, so there's going to be this situation where, where Jesus is exhausted physically in his humanity, um, which puts him at his weakest possible point uh, to try to end that hunger or that, that deprivation that he's put himself through. Um, God often asks his servants, including himself, to deal with sin before doing ministry or doing work. This seems counterintuitive. A lot of, and I think a lot of Christians do this. They get saved and they immediately want to serve or be in ministry but they haven't dealt with the sin in their life. And in doing that, Satan can make toys of them and really bring dishonor to God's name when that happens. But God's purposes in testing are for eternal glory, Romans chapter 8. Uh, he brought Josh into this situation where he had to deal with sin. If you remember from Judges 6, Gideon had to deal with sin before he went out and did his work. It is consistent through the Bible that God wants his people to set aside or to consecrate parts of their life before they do ministry. Um, so when God tests us, the goal isn't for us to fail, but to find faithfulness in that test. When Satan tempts us, the goal is for us to fail and for us to go through that. But there's no temptation that's over you except such as common to man, but God is faithful and won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So the question in this chapter when we go through Jesus' temptations is, if there's a way of escape, what is it? And what does it look like for us to overcome temptation? And I think for most of us, this should be just review. Um, but it's good review. So God allows this choice. He creates a world. A lot of people struggle with this. Why would God create a world where people get tempted? And free will necessarily means that there's a choice that goes with it. It's not free will if there's not a choice. Um, so for a limited time, a limited range within God's ordained history, there is a season or a period of testing um, that is within God's, uh, what he allows. 
Um, but it's not necessarily that he creates it or that he brings evil into the world when he does it. So verse 2, when he fasted 40 days, 40 nights, afterwards he's hungry. Uh, fasting is, I think, what we think of it, is to go without food or uh, drink, usually for religious purposes. Um, I think of fasting, and, and I think the broader term for it is to give something up so that we can draw closer to God. And so a lot of times when we're, I think, adjusting or redirecting our life, we can give up some of the things in our life that are from our old life and use that to draw closer to God. And in each of those steps, God can show us new ways to live. To be hungry, panao, is to hunger, to crave, but it has the connotation of to want something extremely badly, even to the point of death. The implication here is that Jesus was hungry to the point of dying. In fact, going 40 days without food, you really are at the physical limits of how long a body can go without food. Um, so he's at the point of death. He's ready to die. There's an implication of starvation there. It seems the testing is entirely dealt with uh, as we go forward based on Jesus' ability to, to memorize the word and to put the word out there. All temptation that we're going to get into is going to be swatted away with scriptures, and I love how Jesus is going to do this. Um, so the word 40, he's out there 40 days and 40 nights. It's not without context. Uh, Noah was out there for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses uh, fasted before he got the Ten Commandments for 40 days. Elijah got the Word of God as a still small voice after he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, we only see those examples, but uh, it, this is kind of one of those very contextual pieces where God mirrors what he's doing in the Old Testament. So, and the last thing before we get into the first temptation the liar shows up right after this amazing baptism experience. I don't think the context of it should be missed. Um, we have huge mountaintop spiritual experiences, and then the next day there's that temptation or that, that fall from, from the mountaintop that happens. Um, but it's essential, and it's part of the service of ministry to go through these trials and to have spiritual victories. Um, we will get uh, three temptations. They are not accidental. It, given that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, uh, when we look at this account versus Luke's account, uh, there is uh, indication that there would have been tempting throughout that 40 days and 40 nights. But we get these three, and we get these three for a reason, and that is that they're kind of the roots of all temptations. And all sin kind of comes out of these three temptations. So verse 3, uh, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written. We sang that in our song. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 3 starts with now when. Uh, it, we have this idea that it just happens. There's no date or timing that's given here. We don't even know if it's morning or night. Uh, which as a Christian... Uh, we should always be ready for this kind of moment. It just happens. So to be prepared for temptation is a good strategy. Um, it says, if is the first word out of the liar's mouth. I think it's interesting. The first word out of John the Baptist's mouth was repent. First word out of Jesus' mouth was repent. First word out of Satan's mouth is if. So the very first two letters that come out of the, the liar's mouth are actually a lie. I don't think so, Satan doubts that Jesus is the Son of God, that that's not what's going on here. Uh, what he is doing is he's challenging 
that idea that he's son of God and that that son of God should be doing or looking differently than what maybe our expectations are and maybe even what Jesus' expectations were. Uh, So if is just a sly word that he throws in there. Notice that Jesus responds not in his divinity, but in verse 4, he answered and said, it is written, he uses the word of God, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus in his humanity is affiliating with humans when he says that. He doesn't respond as though he's son of God. He responds as all men don't live by bread alone. He's using his divinity to serve humanity versus the other way around. And when Jesus condescends himself to be human, he's not going to give us examples of how to beat sin that are inhuman. He's going to beat sin as a human. And I think that's, and he uses a verse that kind of sets that up. Essentially, Jesus is starving to death and he's tempted to serve himself and use his divinity to to gratify his own hunger. Um, And I think Satan does that all the time. We can be following the Lord and go through financial hardship, physical hardship, health issues, family issues, and Satan loves to cast that doubt on what God's plan is for our life, especially when we're in the worst of it and we're the most hungry. And Satan can come in and say things like, well, look at what God's gotten you into. Is this really that great? Why don't you use your will and your ability to take care of this situation? Why wait for God on things? Why trust God for things when you can just take care of it right now in your own strength and your own spirit? So the devil attacks our thoughts. The tempter came to him And he said, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Sin is in the head, and it's a mental mind-to-mind exercise with Satan, with our flesh, with ourselves, and with God. This battle is in the mind. My dog does not struggle with sin. And he does things that we don't even like that he... I mean, he'll pee in the house. But that's not... For him, he doesn't struggle with that. You know, he struggles to serve his master as we should. But humans gave us... God gave us a mind. And that mind is the thing that's going to struggle with sin in ways that other beasts do not, which makes us uniquely human. He's also, there's so much here. It's interesting that one of the great miracles of Jesus is that he makes the loaves and fishes, remember? And he feeds 5,000 people. So he he uses gifts and talents. He actually makes bread out of thin air. He doesn't even use rocks. So one of Jesus' gifts that he's going to give the world is actually food and sustenance. So Satan attacks him right where his spiritual gift is. Or one of those gifts that Jesus... Jesus probably had all the spiritual gifts, right? But he tempts him in that area of where Jesus is going to bless other people. And I think Satan does that to us in the church too. If you're gifted, if you're gonna, if you're gifted then why don't you do gifting your way instead of doing it God's way? So if you're gifted in music, why aren't you a platinum artist? You know, if you're gifted in encouragement, how come you can't cheer everybody up all the time? If you're gifted in teaching, how come people don't understand what you're saying? Or you get confusion or you mess things up. If you're gifted at loving other people, how come people don't love you back? And Satan will do that with our own gifts and he'll challenge our gifts because those are the things that God wants to use. And the temptation here is do it your way instead of doing it God's way, which is, again, the root of sin, right? That self-direction. And I don't think Satan's foolish enough to tempt people that are trying to serve God with things that are overt sin. He doesn't tempt Jesus with the Ten Commandments. Jesus, why don't you go have adultery? Why don't you go murder somebody? He's tempting Jesus with the very things Jesus will do in his ministry. And I, don't th- I think that's a huge aspect of what we're looking at when we do this. If Jesus does this, 
he can't say that his life was one that gave us a model for how to beat sin because he's going to use divine powers to overcome his situation. So he answers, Jesus responds. He responds with a direct quote from the Old Testament, which convicts me. I need to memorize more of the Bible. And that, honestly, this is and it's how we witness. It's how we beat sin. Uh, you need to know the word, and you need to know it word for word. Uh, the, the reference, the quote that he's pointing this from is Deuteronomy 8.3, if you don't already have that in your cross-references. Uh, and Deuteronomy 8.3 says, And he humbled you and suffered you to hunger to f- and fed thee with manna. God's actually talking to Israel in this verse, which you knew not, neither did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Israel was in the wilderness, just like Jesus. They were without food, and God provided for them. They didn't have to go get their own food, um, but they had to rely on him to get that food for them. So if Jesus is exempt from hunger, no, he actually chooses hunger. And he fasts or chooses to do this. Jesus is tempted not because he feels hungry or tired, but because when you're wore out, your feelings tend to trump the truth. Jesus knows the truth and has lived the truth for 30 years. But when you're wore out, spiritual battle can attack us when we're the weakest. Uh, And when we get in trouble or it feels like we're at the edge of our life, the temptation in the flesh is to make a plan instead of trusting the Lord. You know, how do we do our next ministry? Well, we can wait on the Lord for that or we can go make our own plans for how to do that. And it becomes one of those temptations. Jesus uh, says, it is written, for me at least, I circled that in my Bible, that that use of God's word in that it is established and done, it is written as in the past tense. And Jesus is dealing with temptation in the present tense. What helps us deal with the present situation and possible future sin is to know that God has already established the rule on this and he gave us the tool to deal with it. So if our life is the will of God, most people and a lot of Christian people never get past this. That if our life is God's will, we have to give up our own will. We kill ourselves so that we can live in Christ. And that basic sin, my way or God's way, is an instinctive, reactive, persistent temptation that all humans have. It's a big one. It's bigger than go murder somebody. Like this is the kind of sin that just is a day-to-day, do we do it my way or do we do it the way the Bible says? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus speaks this out loud. He gives voice to God's word. And by repeating God's word, there's power in that. So he's, uh, God hasn't told Jesus to turn anything to bread at this point, so Jesus doesn't do it. And in fact, if God wants to kill Jesus, Jesus is willing to be killed. He's willing to die of hunger and starvation if that's what it takes. Because God's told him to do something and he's going to obey it even to the point of death. So Jesus' will then is to wait on God and he doesn't doubt that because it's been written that's the way it should be. Even, even to his own demise. So I, one way to think of this is that at this point, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he chooses by not making food at the point of starvation, he's choosing death over his own way. He's choosing God's will over his will. And in some senses, he's chosen here that the cross is an okay outcome for him. It's not something to be avoided. So Jesus doesn't know necessarily what the next step is, or at least he's reducing himself to humanity here, and he's just going to obey God, and God's told him not to do that right now. So the choice of God's servant 
And as an example to us as humans is we don't need to know even if we're going to live the next day. Because if we're serving God, we're doing what God says and we're in his will, we can be confident in that. It is written. Um, the word ends the discussion. I kind of like that. It's final and conclusive. God's word is good for reproof, for exhortation, and, and it transitions immediately to the next temptation. Interestingly, if you look at the book of Luke, he flips the second and third temptation from what Matthew does, and I think it's because they're making slightly different points as they narrate this. Um, but in Matthew, the, the um, lust of the eyes, the first one's kind of the lust of the flesh, make sure you meet your human needs. The second one's the lust of the eyes, um, and Matthew does that one second. So the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So the location changes. He's now in a city. Uh, they don't get much into it, but either this is a vision that Jesus is having or it's a miracle and they are actually transported to the top of the temple. Either way, it's a spectacle. It's something Jesus sees. The top of the temple to the bottom of the valley would be 200 feet. It's an instant death if you fall. Um, so Jesus is, or the, the liar says to throw him down. Essentially, this would force God to save Jesus because Jesus' mission isn't complete yet. So the first, first temptation is let's do, let's do our way to get to God's end. And this one is let's force God to do it his way to get to his end. And they're slightly different temptations. The first temptation is live by every word, but then notice that the liar uses the word of God for the second temptation. So, okay, I can play that game. And make no mistake, we see that not only Satan, but the spirit of Antichrist does this all over the place in our society today. The word of God gets used selfishly and inappropriately, and Satan can and does use the word of God to his own ends because it's, it's scripture. And so when we hear somebody say something out of context, outside the Holy Spirit, to manipulate or tempt people, uh, we have to be really wary of this. Just because it's written doesn't mean it's being divided or discerned thoughtfully or accurately. So... Uh, we'll unpack what happens here. Satan is quoting Psalm 91, 12, uh, and he's misquoting it. So uh, <laughs> quoting a verse and then taking words out of it is not dividing the scriptures accurately. It's not teaching the complete whole counsel of God. It's teaching it. It's picking and choosing is what he's doing. Um, a workman doesn't need to be ashamed of rightly dividing the word of truth, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Uh, so here it is, uh, Psalm 91, 12 says, Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, they're on top of the temple, right? So he's brought them to a location, the Most High. Uh, not exactly, I think, what it's meant to say there. And then he skips the phrase, in all your ways, in the next sentence. Um, so if you skip the idea that because you've made the Lord who is your refuge, if you skip that conditional clause, and then you remove in all your ways... It comes out like Satan says it. Um, God never promises to hold up sinful people, and he never promises to hold up prideful people, and he never promises to be played like a puppet, right? So when Satan says he shall give angels charge over you, it should say in all your ways, 
in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So he's doing something that's not God's way. It's Satan's way or it's what you'd call a sin of presumption. <clears throat> it's presuming that you can dictate to God what God's going to do. If you do this, then God has to do this. And this is, quite frankly, a lot of what's in Christian bookstores right now. It's these patent methods where if you pray this prayer, then God has to do this. If you ask for wealth and glory and greatness and healing, God has to give you that because he said he would. But it's often a misquote that takes those things out, and it's a lie right from Satan. We are to be in God's way before we ask for anything. Uh, we are supposed to be doing it because the Lord is our refuge and he's our most, even the most high dwelling place. Then we act out of that place of being in God's will. This is why we have to read, learn, and remember God's full counsel, the whole word of God. This is the calling that I think we have in the Calvary movement is that we will not shun to declare to, to the people all the counsel of God, as Paul says in Acts 20, 20, 20 Knowing God's word gives us boldness. It helps us deal with temptation. Why is the church so falling to temptation so badly right now? Because they don't know the word very well. And they can't understand when they have a preacher or a teacher or a book telling them something untrue. They can't decide that because they haven't read it for themselves. So when we pull away from God's will, we can be led any direction. So we have to know the word of God ourselves. I like how Jesus' response here says, it's written again. Um, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which basically is that you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You don't control God. We don't control God. We serve God. Uh, and it goes in that direction necessarily. If God, then us. Not if us, then God. So again, uh, Jesus throws in there in the Greek, uh, it means in turn it's written or on the other hand it's written or the reverse of. Basically, he applies the entire word of God, not just a sentence that's misquoted from it. So Satan throws out the scriptures and Jesus throws it right back and says, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, tempt there is a test again, parazzo. Uh, in verse 1, it's parazo, I'm sorry. And in verse 7, the word temp is ex parasto, or to come out of something. Don't try to pull out of God a test from him. So the word temp there gets, uh, it's translated the same in the English, but it's different. The first temptation is that we are tested by God, and the second temptation is don't try to test God. Um, don't tempt him. Don't pull out of something that he doesn't want to give. So we can receive blessings from God, but we don't elicit those blessings. We don't tell God when they're going to happen. In fact, uh, Jesus will be put on high. It's only it's on high on a cross. It's not on high on the temple. Um, I also like that he quotes something that says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It's like Jesus slides that in. Like, by the way, liar, he's your God too. And you don't just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean that he's not God. In fact, uh, it's not that Satan has an issue with believing in God. It's that he chooses to defy God. But he's still Satan's God too. Uh, so we don't get to uh, we don't get to test God. So we don't we can't fix our trials with our own strength, temptation number one, and we can't create trials and then wait for God to do amazing things, temptation number two. So the liar says, test God, Jesus says no, and that's the end of it. We get to temptation number three.
Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6.13. Worship and serve here are synonymous. You can't worship God, sing a bunch of songs to him and then not go serve him because that's hypocritical. So Jesus, I think, artfully puts those two together and quotes a verse where he puts them together. Um, some say this last temptation might be desperation from the devil. I think it might be, or, or possibly this is his best shot at Jesus. And the, what he's doing here, and it's very subtle, is that he's offering Jesus a path to do his own mission, to be the king and lord of glory over the whole world. That actually is God's plan for Jesus. He is king. He is the prince of peace. Um, and he will dominate and, and rule the earth as he returns to it. Satan's actually offering him all of that. Just do it with what the world has to offer and partner with Satan in doing that. So it's, it's subtle. It's an escape path. for the. He doesn't have to do the cross. If he just partners with Satan, he can avoid that pain and that agony. Uh, the time it's going to take. I mean, he could avoid 2,000 years on waiting on humanity if he agrees with Satan here. It's the same temptation that Satan gave to Adam. Essentially, you can defy God and do it your own way, and your dominion can be one that's set on your own terms versus God's terms. And so Jesus ruling the world is a good thing, but it's not God's way to do it. So the liar uses a positive goal a promise and a path to get there that's just partnering with the world. And when we partner with, this happens all the time. Well, maybe we can bring peace on earth if we just have all the churches partner up with each other and do a food drive, you know, or, you know, we can just do these little kind of things that will bring peace on earth. And the truth is peace on earth doesn't show up until Jesus shows up. And the only peace we can hope for is in our own hearts as we relate to Jesus and how Jesus connects us with other believers in the same way. So Jesus is going to crush Satan. The t third temptation is that he doesn't crush Satan. He partners with Satan. Genesis 3.15, the original promise of the Son of God is to crush the head of Satan and to do battle with Satan, not to unite with him and be partners with him. Uh, Satan says, I will give. And one question is, does, does, does the devil have the power to give Jesus the world? Uh, Genesis 1, God gives Adam the earth to have dominion over, and Adam partners with Satan and loses that dominion. And Satan becomes then the spirit of this age. And humans have, since Adam, unanimously given Satan the dominion over their lives because they choose the world over God. And there's, there's this season in which God is allowing this testing and Jesus doesn't contest Satan's ability to give him the world. He doesn't argue with him about that. Um, he, Satan says to fall down and worship me. Really, this is what the liars always wanted. He hates God's creation. Uh, he wants to destroy it. He's, he's a, a beast that seeks what he can devour, and he's trying to devour Jesus here. Jesus says, away with you, Satan, hupa ogo, is to depart or get behind. It has the connotation of disgust. The next time we see Jesus use this is when Peter is tempting him to not have to go through the cross situation. 
And Jesus says the same thing. Get away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And it's almost like Satan went from this temptation and came back at a later time, as Luke says. You know, it, Satan departed for a later time, and that later time is through Peter's voice, making virtually the same temptation. You can avoid the cross if you just worship me. You can have the world. I'll give it to you. Um, and when he says, get away, uh, away with you, Satan, that's the first use in the Greek of the word Satan. It's satanos, adversary or accuser is what it means. So the devil is a liar and Satan's the accuser. Jesus knows his name here. It's a proper noun. In this point, Jesus says, away with you, Satan, and he uses his name to get rid of him. So Satan tempts with rank. Jesus rejects it. Um, a couple, just a few thoughts from all three temptations put together that I think for me are helpful and a blessing. One is to notice how calm Jesus is throughout all this. He doesn't yell, doesn't scream, doesn't bicker. Um, he's not ritualistic and he's not crazy about the situation. And that often happens. And in fact, in the movies, you see it all the time. Somebody's going to deal with Satan and they start yelling and screaming and holding up crucifixes and throwing water and things like that. Jesus just quotes the word of God and at the end of it he says, away with you, I'm done. Enough. So there's a calmness uh, and that calmness comes because Jesus knows the power of God is much, much stronger than the power of Satan. Um, another thought is that there's no fear here and that Jesus doesn't, uh, Jesus isn't doing battle with Satan. He's being tempted by Satan, but it's, it's not like there's a fair fight here. You know, when Jesus is done, it's just over, and there's no fear. Um, I think a lot of times when it comes to things that are satanic or demonic, uh, one of the temptations is for us to be fearful about it, and there's nothing to be fearful about because it is written. The command is there. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength is also in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus doesn't quote that. He quotes 6.13. Um, that says you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. Uh, one thought here is that Jesus quotes, everything Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8. And if he's submitting himself to affiliate with humanity, it's almost like while he was in the wilderness, Jesus was reading through Deuteronomy. And he pulls his verses just maybe from the, the devotions he had that morning or that day. You know, and you'd think Jesus knows the entirety of the word of God but he's quoting about as much as the mind can handle, which is a couple chapters. And I just thought that was an interesting thought. So as, as Jesus is showing us how to beat Satan, he doesn't expect us to know the entirety of the word of God by heart at once, but we should be daily in the word and doing devotions so that we have portions of the word of God in our head at all times. And blessings to the believers that memorize more than that. But even the most new believer can read a chapter in the morning and have it in their heart when they go through the day. And that that is sufficient, even just a chapter or two is sufficient to deal with Satan himself. So I thought that was a neat thought too. Um, in this sense, we have a person who conquers sin or deals with these temptations in a way that we as humans can handle. He doesn't use any of his divinity to deal with Satan. He just uses the word of God and says it's written. And that's all he needs to have. So we have the example of a man that is tired and hungry and exhausted and still knows how to beat Satan. And that's the first work that happens after the baptism. 1 Corinthians 15. Earthly people are like earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. 
What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies can't inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies can't inherit things that will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be transformed. As we do things in the flesh, we're exercising for when we're in the spirit. So this encounter shows us a path to be heavenly people, to store up treasures in heaven that don't rust and see how to fight sin. So the power to beat sin, in summary, is the Holy Spirit at the baptism and the Word of God. And you put those two things together, not only does the Holy Spirit help us to understand the Word of God, the Word of God helps us to understand the Holy Spirit and God in us. So the Word of, is complete in opposition to the enemy, um, and it is in complete opposition to this world. We were enemies of God, Romans 5, uh, until later, until we find God, and then we're not enemies with God. So the devil left him, verse 11, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So the first temptation was for him to minister to himself, but in verse 11, he just waited on God, and now he's getting ministered to. So it, it's not that he's starving to death. God actually saves him and does it in his own time. So as soon as the liar departs, there's peace, nourishment, strength, care, and company. He's not alone anymore. And as these angels uh, minister to him and take care of him, it, it fulfills, by the way, Psalm 11:12, which is what Satan was trying to use before, um, is that they actually are coming to save him and keep him from falling. As Psalms prophesied, um, G Satan got it wrong, but now it's actually coming true the right way. It's kind of a nice connection. The only effective fighting tool for fighting temptation is God's word. And the kingdom right now, the church, is full of self-help strategies, using psychology to help deal with temptation, using drugs to help deal with issues that we have. Um, we live in a world that does everything backwards. And this <clears throat> use of God's word is actually relying on truth and not on what the world has to offer us. So daily devotions, the Holy Spirit, the word, uh, the word ministered there um, is diaconio, it's to give service or to wait on. It often connotes foods. The, the angels came with some food too. Um, like God had him in reserve and waiting because God doesn't want to see his children suffer. He wants to see them be helped and cared for. So Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not for Satan. Okay, so I had this thought too. as If the word of God helps me deal with all temptations, and we have these three big temptations that are given as example here, I just thought it might be nice, and as I'm doing this, you may have verses too that you can bless us with, but we'll take a break in the teaching this morning. I'm just going to read a temptation and then a verse. And there are things that for me and for Steph, because I already picked her brain, that as we go through our lives, there are verses that have helped us overcome sin because this is how you battle sin. So, um, for instance, if we struggle with greed... Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every, word of, by, by every word of God, from the mouth of God. So we can use the ones Jesus used, but we can also use, if we're worried, Philippians 4.6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Instead of worrying, give it to God. And so here's another one. If you get angry about something, Proverbs 15.2, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours out foolishness. My anger is actually foolishness. 
you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself because I'm the Lord, Leviticus 19.18. You don't have a right to get angry. If I'm prideful or if my head gets big, Psalm 147.6, the Lord lifts up the humble, he casts the wicked down to the ground. If I'm ashamed of myself, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Are you thinking of some of your own as I do this? I got a few more. Afraid, 2 Timothy, if I'm fearful, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Or uh, if, if for lust, if do not look after the beauty and do not look after her beauty in your heart, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. Or basically for lust, all of Proverbs chapter 6. Confusion, 1 Corinthians 14.33, if I'm confused about things in my life, what should I do? For God's not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. If I'm depressed, Lamentations, well, the book of Lamentations. But Lamentations 3, verse 20. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's mercies are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. Um, the Lord is good to those who wait for him and the soul who seeks him, and it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Other verses? Ones that have helped you with temptation? If any man acts wisdom. Good. Temptation of Satan, you know, Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 5. Uh, the adversary of the devil walks about like a roaring lion, so we resist him steadfast in faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Proverbs 22.11, he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. I think part of temptation, what helped Jesus here, was that he saw God's plan and it was simply more appealing to Jesus than Satan's plan. And if we seek purity over our own corruption and love purity, and I think that's what the word does for me at least, is I fall in love with God's plan. This is what God had in order. And if I can do that, then I can seek purity. I want purity because I want what God has. Um, when we get done, this is a good lunch conversation too, but those verses that get us through life, and the Bible's just stock full of them. It's an entire book of the truth of God. So in the Holy Spirit, we have a will to fight, but in the Word, we have the tools to fight, understand, interpret, and speak it. Immediately the story shifts, and we have these big shifts in Matthew. We go from baptism, and then we go to the wilderness, and then John's in prison, verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came to dwell in Capernaum. So he moves, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, 
beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Light there is a proper noun. It's being used as a name. The light has dawned. Light, and I talk about this when I do Genesis, light has a source and it has a reception. In between, there's just waves. So when we talk about light, we have to talk about an energy source that produces it or we have to talk about what it bounces off, the difference between the candle and the light bouncing off the couch. So when we talk about light, it is God's revelation to the world that he can be known by man. God is the light, and when he comes in his human form, he actually bounces off, and we can see God in Jesus. The light has come. It says, Galilee of the Gentiles. At this point in time, this region we're talking about is largely or the majority of the people there are Gentiles. And this is where Jesus makes his home. So these, even these periods in Jesus' life that we would think like when we just move from this town to that town, we think that's kind of inconsequential or maybe our own will. God tends to use those things as part of the plan. <laughs> so even in this, Matthew's pointing out that we meet and we fulfill more prophecy even when they move there. Uh, another thought here is John records that on the trip from Nazareth to Galilee, this is where Jesus meets the woman at the well. Matthew skips the story, but Jesus is starting his ministry at this point, and definitely there are stories happening where Matt sums it up and just kind of he moved from here to here. Another thought is, and we know this, when Jesus heard John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And John is put in present. Herod's territory was Galilee. So Jesus hears from Nazareth of what happens down by the Jordan with John, and he gets put in prison. Jesus actually goes towards the trouble, not away from it. And in this situation, instead of going to Egypt, he's actually going to where John was abducted. So the region had about 204 villages, according to Josephus, roughly 3 million people at this period in history. The Romans hadn't been eradicating Jews at this time and Gentiles, um, and he lands there. So another thing is that as he goes from Nazareth to dwell in Capernaum, Matthew sees this as, you know, this is where Matthew's from too. He's from Capernaum. So things start to fall into place really quickly, but it's mostly Gentile people. The light gets shown, and this is where he's going to actually start revealing himself to people. Uh, likely he's going to continue the ministry where John left off. You put John in prison, Jesus is just going to keep saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is, is near. So, and that's what he says in verse 17. He picks up exactly where John left off with the exact same message that John had. You can kill the workmen, but you can't stop the kingdom of going, from going on. The work's going to continue. I love that. You know, one martyr goes down and more Christians come in. And it's kind of the way God works sometimes is that you can stop the person, but you can't stop the power of God. So from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message John had. Um, we talked a little bit about that sentence when we were back in that chapter, so I'm going to keep moving. It's beautiful, the idea that God says to repent. And when God says it, when Jesus says it, it's not just some guy coming up with a philosophy. It's God himself saying repent, and we should take hope in that because if God says repent, it means it's possible. 
Like we can repent. We can turn from our ways and turn towards him. And he just demonstrated it out in the wilderness. It is possible to beat temptation and to beat sin in the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful thought. We can actually follow an almighty God and we can seek holiness knowing that we will fall short of the mark. But we can still pursue it with everything we got. The law shows us how helpless we are. Paul says we are damned under the law. So we know that we've failed. But Jesus says to repent, and now we have hope in just that one word, repent. That repentance that we don't have to be living under the curse anymore. So in verse 18, uh, Jesus calls his disciples. John and Luke have a lot more detail here. Matthew doesn't. And part of that is that John is one of the people that get called here, so he knows the story better. Matthew gets called a little later. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon and Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They're working. And then he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their fathers and followed him. Matt presents two sets of brothers, four people. They're all fishermen. Fishing at this period in history was not poor man's work. And I think we get this image that they were broke, especially the Chosen paints that picture with Peter. Um, the fishermen had to own boats. They had to own nets and equipment. Uh, they, had to, they, were, they would have been easily middle-class citizens, and some of them would have been quite wealthy. Uh, the production of food from the water would have, made, would have made them fairly good money. In Mark 1.20, we see that Zebedee actually had employees or servants. So he owned people that worked for his business. Uh, again, he's a small business owner at that point. Um, so they had their boats, equipment, they had obligations. And I've, since I was 16, this passage strikes me. He says, follow me, and they do. Their hearts were already ready to go. There's no discussion. There's no debate. He doesn't have to outline a four-point gospel to them. He just says, follow me, and they recognize who, who's talking to him. He's been ministering in Galilee, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is hand, verse 17. They're likely people that came out and heard him speak. And he finds them or locates them, and they're just ready to go. The invitation for a rabbi to invite people to follow them is not uncommon in the first century. This is how it worked. What's uncommon about this call is that the rabbi inviting them is not a Levite. It's somebody from the tribe of Judah. So it's not a proper rabbi calling them but he goes as to be a to be a, to be um, disciples under a teacher the other thing is that it's not common for fishermen to get invited to be a student under a rabbi uh, that's completely new god's going to use the weak things of the world to um to defy the strong um, and it's not um it's an it's an odd thing usually disciples would approach a rabbi and ask if they could follow them in this part of the world. But by Jesus asking them, he's lowering himself to, to ask for disciples. Does that make sense? So in those three ways, it's not like first century teacher-student relationship, um, but it is how Jesus is going to do this. Jesus, when he says, follow me, incurs a choice, and the choice isn't his. If they came to him and said, can we follow you? then the choice belongs to Jesus. But when he says, follow me, the choice belongs to them. Nobody's obligated to follow Jesus. It's not something that God forces people to do. And that basic request 
if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Um, the equation is so simple. If we, we don't have to follow him, but if we do, he has a plan for us, and he wants to do something with us. Um, Gusick points out that God calls people when they're busy doing work. And he goes through and does this whole thing. Like Moses and David were both tending their sheep. Gideon and Amos were both farming. Matthew was working as a tax collector. And here we got four fishermen mending nets um, and, and uh, I'm sorry, casting out the nets, right, as one. How does it exactly does it say it? They were casting a net into the sea, which is kind of, Peter's going to, that's going to kind of be Peter's ministry. He's going to be the one out casting the nets. And then James and John, we know that John becomes a caretaker of Mary and mending the nets. What they kind of do in the church is mend and take care of the church. God actually uses skills we get in our work sometimes to come over into the ministry, but in very, very different ways than what we planned. Uh, God marketedly doesn't call people that are lazy and doing nothing. And this is a big one for young people. If you don't know what God's called you to, then get to work. The commandment of God is you should work six days and rest on the seventh. So if the world only asks for five days a week to work, then what are you doing with your sixth day? And is it work that could be adding to or building skills that God can, can or might use in the kingdom in his own way? So practice that contentment in work. All of these people, Moses, David, Gideon, Amos, James, John, Peter, Andrew, Matthew, are content in their jobs until God says, are you ready to go? Um, even Paul is a tent maker while he's serving God. To be walking away from work should not be a reason to go into the ministry. We should be active people and then keep that activity as we go into the ministry. So the idea of immediately in the Greek is euthios, directly, forthwith, straight away. The emphasis of that word is on time. There is no gap between the invitation and their following. So one thing that that chosen show gets right is Jesus says, follow me at the boat. And, and Andrew just throws the nets down and starts walking that way. Like there was an instant reaction. But the Bible says there was an in, instant reaction from all four of them. So it wasn't something where there was a hesitation there or anything like that. Jesus has called people that are active at work, that are already stirred by the Holy Spirit, and following Jesus becomes a joy as demonstrated by their immediate response. It's something they're excited to do. Following Jesus can require leaving some things behind. They leave the boats, they leave their coworkers, they leave their dad. Uh, so sometimes even family is something that gets left behind as we go to follow the Lord. Uh, of course, Zebedee's in support of this. It's kind of an honor to get to train with Jesus. So he's behind it, we see. Um, but it does leave things untended. Those nets never get finished. Um, and God calls them to do something else. It isn't that when we leave things behind that we hate those things, and I think that's how the world sees it. If you're abandoning this, it must mean you hate me or you, you're, you're fanatical about your religion. No, we're not fanatical about religion, but we choose purity and we choose holiness over anything else. So it's a prioritization. It's not a rejection of in those things. So not all good things are God things. Casting nets and mending them are not bad things. They're good things. So God's not calling them away from sin. He's calling them away from an, actually a pretty good thing to come do something that's more godly, more of a calling. Then Jesus heals a multitude. Like there's a progression here. 
And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people, teaching in their synagogues. Is one way to... So there's three things. He goes about teaching, preaching, and healing. And they're three different things. And this sentence summarizes the ministry. So he gets baptized. He deals with sin and gets Satan out of the way. And then he gathers people and builds a fellowship. And, um, and then immediately he goes out and he starts doing ministry. So these are the progressions that Jesus has modeled for us too. Um, at this time, teaching in their synagogues, the Jewish synagogue system is that when a traveling teacher came into town, they would let him speak. Do you have something to say to us? And they would get up and read from one of the scrolls. Uh, the synagogues were where the scrolls were kept. Paul, when he does his ministry, uses the synagogue system too. It's almost like the whole synagogue system was invented so God could easily spread the gospel. It's almost like the Roman roads and the Greek language from Alexander the Great before him was set up for this season, for just a time as this, to where God's word could go out easily and quickly. And the Roman roads would physically get them there. The Greek language would create a common grounds for them to speak throughout the world. Um, and then, all, of, of course, the, the message goes through these synagogue systems um, where teaching was to read from the word. Here's a passage. And then they would explain what it meant. We see examples of that in the scriptures where um, Jesus gets up and reads from a scroll and then very quickly says, the kingdom of God is here. And, and this has been fulfilled in, in your eyes. So he explains what it means. And it's what we do on Sunday mornings, what we do in Dubai. So we read a chapter. We say, here's what this means. So the ministry of Jesus, God, was to gather four people and start teaching the Bible. And that's, that's the beginning of the ministry of God himself. Um, this is not the worldly way to build a kingdom. Uh, in, in the world sense, you grab 30 people, you move them all to the same town at the same time, you do a church plant, you get funding sources from your parent church, uh, and then you rebuild it based on the formula that you have to rebuild that church model. Um, and then you start gathering as many people as you can so that your tithe amounts can get up so you can get into a new building and get out of the strip mall and buy your own building, right? That's the plan. God's plan is let me just get, gather some fishermen and start teaching the word. And God's plan actually leads to him going around all Galilee, teaching wherever the doors are open to teach, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That one doesn't say where he does it. So preaching could be out on the streets, anywhere people would listen. The Greek world also had agoras or central marketplaces in every town. And they were like the secular version of the synagogue. If you wanted to talk to the Jews, you go to the synagogue on Sabbath. If you wanted to talk to the Greeks, you just stand in the middle of the marketplace and get up on a soapbox and start preaching the word. The problem is getting the scrolls out. So you had to memorize the word of God in order to do that out in the agora. So the teaching, didasco, is the same Greek root word for didactic or to think reasonably, or to use uh, prolonged uh, explanations and doctrinal training. It's to instruct. Didactic is to uh, actually get into the nuts and bolts of things and to talk about it. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without the law, 2 Chronicles 15.3. It's been 400 years since somebody's really rightly divided the scriptures. So when Jesus gets up and starts teaching, he's blowing people away because they're in a drought. Nobody's teaching the word. So you get people that will hear Jesus teach, and I'm sure it's like what we experience, where people are like, I've never heard anything like that. No, because you're listening to people that aren't teaching the word. 
So it's not anything that humans can't do. Preaching Caruso, not Robinson Caruso, but Caruso, preaching is a very different word than the, the teaching. Didactic versus Caruso. Caruso is to herald or proclaim or make a public announcement. It's the first use of it in the Bible. So we see that teaching is essential, but so is preaching, and they're very, very different things. And I think God's called people to do both teaching and preaching, and he's called people to do just teaching, and he's called people to do just preaching. Um, but to be out in the public, proclaiming it, saying it boldly, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel is a first use in the Bible. Euangelion. Uh, it means good tidings or good news. And I think we all kind of know good news is the kingdom of God has arrived. And when Jesus says it, of course, it's good news. The kingdom of God has arrived and I'm it. <laughs> you know, so he's speaking from the first person. Let me show you this from the word and then let me heal people and show you it in power and in truth. So teaching is the explanation and clarifying. Preaching is the application and direction or the proclamation of it. And they're very kind of different things and they can go together. Healing is the third thing says he heals all kinds of sicknesses, which have to do with uh, um, physical illness, and di diseases and maladies, which have to do with physical weaknesses, or the word literally translates softnesses. So if you've got a spot that's, that's soft, that, that might be something you need. Below it says torments, which would imply a physical, tor a psychological torture, or a mental situation. And then... Um, well, I'll just read the next verse. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases, and here they say torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. This is medically accurate, and this is so impressive, because people will say, well, if you're a believer, then you just pray over everything, and it's all demon possession, and they'll even make movies. I mean, the world's really pumping this right now if you look at what's being put out that in history, Christians just prayed over paralytics because they didn't know the difference between demon possession and, and not paralytics, and yeah, paralytics, and people that have um, epileptic seizures, right? And I literally, that's the world's narrative, is that Christians couldn't tell the difference between a demon-possessed person and an epileptic seizure, yet when you read verse 24, they clearly know the difference back in the first century. They weren't mixing this stuff up. The world likes to paint that picture of Christians, but that is obviously not what's going on here because they're using the Greek words that are incredibly specific. So it's medically accurate. Despite what the world says, where these things are all spiritual, Jesus heals through the power of God, but he heals diseases which are physical, torments which are psychological, demon possessions which are demon possessions, epileptics, which is a physical and neurological issue, and paralytics, which is a, a neurological and physical issue. So when the Bible writes it accurately, and then the world wants to say that Christians did it another way, we have to stand up to that. The Bible never says that people that are paralyzed are demon-possessed. It can be that demon possession causes paralysis, but it's not that they had that confused in their head when they did it. I love this verse. Because even before the first century had, even as pagan religions mix these things up, Matthew does not mix them up. He doesn't confuse them at all. And that these aren't the same thing. You can be epileptic and you're not demon-possessed. You can be a paralyzed and it has nothing to do with your level of sin or allowance of Satan into your life. You can have a disease and it has nothing to do with spiritual. But God can heal all of those things for his glory. He can instantly heal the mind. He can heal the body. 
he can cast demons out, and he can do it instantly, and Jesus does. So Matthew has Jesus say something, repent, the kingdom of God is here, and then he shows that Jesus does something and demonstrates that the kingdom is actually here. So Matthew doesn't cite a reference on this because it's assumed. So, so far as we've gone through Matthew, almost every paragraph has said, so it's been fulfilled by the word of God. When Matthew does this one, he doesn't necessarily cite a source. And I think that's because it's assumed that the king, the Messiah, and God does exactly what he's saying here. So I want to take a quick tour through the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, 39. I hear pages, so I'll pause and wait. This is so well known by the Jews in reading the Old Testament that Matthew doesn't even need to cite a source. That's my point. Because this is just a given that when this happens, God has shown up and that this is evidence of God. Okay, Deuteronomy 32, 39. Now see that I, even I, he, and that there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. The one who heals is God and God alone. Second Kings 5, verse 7. Israel's king uh, knows that he can't heal himself. He's, he's lost. Uh, he tears his clothes right before this verse, 2 Kings 5, 7. And then and he tears his clothes and he says, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends me to a man to heal him of leprosy? He goes to the prophet and the prophet tells him to, to wash in the river and God heals him. So healing is tied to the forgiveness of sin and God forgives sin and only God forgives sin. 2 Chronicles 7.14. So when does God heal and when does he do it? When he so pleases. But he also gives some direction in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people are called by my name, what's God's name? Jesus. If my people are called by God's name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, which we call repenting, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So when we see Jesus healing all sorts of diseases, Matthew's citing the whole Old Testament. Like this is what the Jews knew and accepted as part of their belief. I'm going to go to Jeremiah next. Jeremiah 30, and then I'll flip to Jeremiah 33. So we've seen it in the historical books. We've seen it in the law, Deuteronomy, and then we're going to see it in the prophets with Jeremiah. Who's going to heal Israel? Who does the healing? God does the healing, says the Lord. Uh, so Jeremiah 30, I'm going to pick up, or I'm just going to read verse 17. Again, this whole chapter is just wonderful. For I will restore health to you and heal all of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. Remember, he's in Galilee, which is an area of Gentiles and Jews. If you go to Jeremiah 33, Here he's talking about Israel. Behold, I will bring it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. The goal of the healing was for people to find peace and people to find truth. So as Jesus speaks and then does something, the purpose of that is when he does something, they should listen to what he says. And he creates this ministry of those two things happening. Also, if you, if you want to go into this during the week, 
Lamentations, like the whole book, Hosea, uh, Isaiah 57, 19, all talk about the idea of healing leading to peace. Uh, Zechariah talks about God as healer. The act of healing as a ministry is only attributed to God and God alone throughout the Word of God. So when Matthew says Jesus went about healing all kinds of things, uh, it is a way to say the Messiah is here. And he doesn't need to cite a source on that because there's scores of sources that say that throughout the Old Testament. God and God alone does healing. 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Gentiles would have been these people, men and women, old and young. Anybody that wanted to be with God followed him. And there's no distinction, no divider of persons. Uh, all of humanity is, is grouped up in that sentence. The multitudes then are coming, and they're coming both to hear God and, of course, to be healed because they hear, heal he can hear, so they show up. But they stay as servants. They were weak, but now they're strong. And that starts to happen. The kingdom of God now has people in it, and they were people that came with a need to come to Jesus to be healed. And that is the kingdom that God's going to build. So Matthew has a clear progression for Jesus' ministry and how he builds a kingdom. It starts with baptism, the water and the Holy Spirit. That fulfills righteousness, and Jesus chose to do that first. It, it, second, it goes to a struggle with sin or a successfully handling of the Word of God to know the Word of God and to use it. Then it goes to Jesus hearing. John, John uh, hears that, Jesus hears that John's taken away, and he goes to where the ministry is ready to be had. John left a big opening, and there was a need to go there. So I love this in the ministry. Like, you go where the need is. And we, I remember when we first moved back to the Twin Cities, that's what we kind of talked about as a family is whatever this church needs help with, that's what we're going to do. And we will figure out how to do whatever they have a need or wherever there's a gap. And if they don't have any needs or gaps, then maybe we should go find one. But Jesus goes to where there's a gap and where there's a ministry just stopped and Jesus goes to, to pick it up. There's his opening. The fourth thing is Jesus fellowships. He goes out and he gathers disciples and he starts being in fellowship with these four guys. So he has a network or a community that he's in. Then Jesus preaches and then healing starts to happen. And the world tries to flip this, that the first thing that should happen in the kingdom is that we're, out, we're, we're seeing the miraculous and the wonderful, or the first thing people should do is out, be out preaching. And, and, and when we reverse those things, and Satan loves to reverse them, Christians get into ministry before they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. They jump into ministry before they know the Word of God, which is then in vain because they don't know the Word. They're going to be deceived. They go out before they hear of a need. So they start creating their own needs and getting into ministry. Or they go out before they have fellowship, before they have brothers and sisters that we are following the Lord together. And if you're out doing ministry before those things, you're ripe to be attacked by the enemy. But Jesus does this in the right order, the order that God has. Acts 1, 4 through 5. Being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall then be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Jesus even told his disciples not to jump out and do things until the Holy Spirit showed up. And that, to me, is extremely convincing. I mean, that's something I need to be thinking about, too. Am I jumping into things before God wants me to, or am I humbly waiting for God to show those kinds of things? So stepping forward before God says to is falling into the first temptation, even if it's to make bread. 
The answer to that is know the Word of God and the Spirit. If we create or build needs or make up our own ministries, that's falling to the second temptation. And the solution to that, even if it's to trust in something that's not God, it's still the second temptation. The answer to that is to wait upon the Lord. And I'll, I'll be at the peak of the temple when God wants me to be at the peak of the temple. To desire glory or do it our own way is to follow into the third temptation, even if it's God's plan, but it's not God's way to that plan. Right? We were just talking about what does it look like to make a Bible Institute. Bible Institute is definitely God wills for us to be teaching the Word of God, but if we don't get there God's way, it's worthless. It's just empty and vain. And that's the third temptation. The answer to that, have fellowship with brothers and sisters in the faith so you can pray and test together and satisfy any contentment you might have, you get in that fellowship. You don't go to the world needing anything. You don't need a high from what you do out in the world because you get it with the fellowship of the saints. So I, for me, at least, Matthew 4, the temptation is to just teach the temptation and the next week do the other parts. But the other parts are part of what Matthew's trying to talk about with the temptations. They all kind of fit and go together. Um, so that pro And then here's the other thing, and I got to say this is conditional. Another way Satan will misuse this order of events is to say, well, then you can't preach if you haven't done this. You have to go in this order. Or it's an excuse for people to say, well, I haven't finished struggling with sin, so I'm not going to preach God's word or get out and evangelize. But it's been 10 years, right? And it's like, how long is this going to take you? It took Jesus 40 days. Like, you're going to do 40 years of just not doing anything because you haven't done that? And I don't think that's what Matthew's saying at all. Jesus is showing us a way, and that path and that way has an order to it, but it, that order is not an excuse to not be moving through that progress. So we should be getting baptized. We should be struggling with sin and dealing with it and knowing the Word of God. We should be in fellowship. We should be hearing where there's open ministries and going towards those things, and then we should be preaching, and we should be looking for God to heal lives and physical ailments and demon possessions and all those things. But those fancy good things don't come without that progression that even Jesus held himself to. And Jesus didn't have to. He could have gone straight to healing people, but he didn't do that. He went straight to the wilderness after the baptism and after the Holy Spirit and after that big moment. And then he went straight to finding some fishermen who probably stank. They didn't go home and take showers. You know? And he started hanging around with people that were a little bit, little bit funky. You know? And I think that that's part of the beauty of the church is sometimes we look around and we hang out with people who are a little bit funky, and that's okay. God loves that. God loves a diverse and a, and a, ch a church where people don't always look like us. So the next chapter is the Sermon on the Mount. This chapter should have gotten our attention so that we hear what he says in the next chapter, which is the ministry. And, and I don't think we're going to get through the whole sermon. And you know, is it? We'll probably take a couple weeks with it, but because it's we want to know what the kingdom is all about. Um, but let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. Help us to rightly divine your word, to, to, to divide it from truth, from lies. And we see how expertly Satan can misuse the scriptures, Lord. Don't let us fall into that. Give us your strength, your power, your Holy Spirit, that we know your word beyond a shadow of a doubt. Lord, help us to learn your word so that we can react to temptation with your word and have that temptation be done and, and, and get it behind us. Lord, help us to pursue purity more than our flesh, more than things we want, things we think we should do, even when those things are good and they're in your will. Uh, Lord, help us to not do it our way, but to do it your way. Um, we, don't, uh, 
we don't have very long lives and we don't have days to waste. So Lord, we give them to you and you can use them however you want, even unto death. Uh, we, we offer you everything we have. It's all yours. Um, we don't need any of it. Um, help us to, Lord, be content in our fellowship so we don't go out in the world needing things, uh, including retirement and money and, and, and entertainment. We don't need those things from the world, Lord, because we're satisfied in you and we're content in you. Lord, teach us your way and, and teach us how to follow you like the disciples did, Lord, that you call and we come and there's openings and we go to them. And Lord, we just want to do that without hesitation because we trust you and we trust that you, your plans are good and not evil um, and we want to be part of them. And we just thank you for that amazing blessing you give us to be part of what you're up to. We just thank you for that. We lift you up in your holy name. Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.